0: Thank you guys so much for being here. Uh, we really are con- excited to continue this, this series, you know, and, and those who are here the last two weeks know we talked about identity. Drew kicked us off two weeks ago, talking about what it means for us to be a man of God and what it means for us to lead as men in terms of who we are at our core, at our identity. So this week and next week, we're going to jump into the idea of vocation. So tonight we're going to do some more teaching and, and walking through what the Bible says about that topic. Uh, and next week, I hope you guys can come back. We're going to do some more deep dive application about what this means. And at your tables, you should have some slips of paper um, that have uh, ability for you to write a question on it. Uh, and If you don't see that, just write it on the on the. Uh, yeah, I think they're they're at the table. So go ahead. And as you go tonight, as we go, if you if something pops out, you have a question or you want us to talk about something next week in terms of what we talk about tonight. Go ahead and just write that on there and you can leave it at your table. When we clean up tonight, we'll grab all those. And we'd love to have that as we figure out uh, how we can best apply this next week to our lives. You know, when you talk about, uh, talk to really any other person, it's so easy. The whole point of this first exercise was it's so easy to say, hey, my name is Noah. I work at Bellevue. Here's what I do. Here's who I am. Here's what I do. And the, the question of what do you do is not a bad question. In reality, it really is a, a good question because the majority of my waking hours, uh, I usually spend at work and, and most of us do. So about half the time that we're awake on an average day, we're spending it at work. And so for me, if I'm spending that much time at work, that much time doing something specific, that's obviously a big aspect, a big part of who I am. And so it's hard to talk about yourself and who you are if you leave that part out. But obviously that's, there's a lot more to who we are as men, who we are as followers of Christ, but that is a big part of who we are. And so naturally, when I talk to somebody, uh, I'm usually interested to know, what do you spend half of your waking hours doing? It's a big part of getting to know men, getting to know who we are as men. And tonight, we're going to really jump into that idea of vocation, as Jason said. Now, we're not talking necessarily just about your job. That's part of it. We're not talking about what company you work for, your employer and not just specifically talking about where you go for your employment. That's all part of it, but we're going to dive into the idea of vocation, and we're going to define that in just a few moments. This is much bigger than just where you work, just who pays you, who is the person whose name is on your paycheck. We're going to talk about the idea of vocation. Now, I think when you look at a room like this, a room this large, There's going to be a lot of different thoughts and reactions when we talk about vocation. Some people here say, hey, you know, I love what I do, and I cannot wait to get back to work tomorrow to do it. This is really a passion of mine. I love what I get to do. Now, there's some people in here who, if they're honest, would say, hey, I cannot wait till Friday because I get two days after that where I don't have to go to work. And then some people, like uh, some of the guys at this table over here, are probably saying, hey, I'm retired. I don't have to worry about that at all. I'm not worried about that. I'm glad I I get to do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it. But we're going to walk through the idea of vocation and if you if you find yourself in one of those three categories I mentioned, I can guarantee you, you're going to hear something tonight that will apply to you as we talk through it. So, what is the difference between employment and vocation? So, let's look very simply, we have a Merriam-Webster Webster dictionary dictionary definition that simply says the work in which A person is employed. That's the definition that Merriam-Webster gives for vocation, the work in which a person is employed. Now that's a good, simple, easy to to remember definition, but that's a very simple and a lacking definition in a lot of ways. And in just a few moments, we're going to look through a, a couple other definitions that we can find out there and really flesh out that idea of vocation. So I am a big fan of researching and understanding words. So my my wife makes fun of me for it all the time. It is the biggest nerd thing that I do. So I have three or four dictionary apps on my phone, and all the time I'll hear a word, and I'll, I'll wonder, what does that mean? Where did that come from? What's the origin? And, and I'll look it up in two, three, four different dictionaries. Uh, I had a, a professor, actually, one time uh, who kind of instilled that that into me. I used to think that a dictionary was a dictionary. I didn't realize that different dictionaries had different definitions and sometimes competing definitions with one another. And there's a lot of times in our lives where we actually have words that uh, change in their use over time. And so some dictionaries track the way a word changes and what it meant versus what it used to mean and all that type of stuff. So if you really get into word studies, let me know. I can show you some great dictionaries later. Um, you probably won't take me up on that. But if you do, I've got some great apps that you can look at. But one thing I love doing is I love looking at multiple definitions in order to try to really get a good foundational understanding of what a word means. So once again, Merriam-Webster simply means the work in which a person is employed. Uh, my favorite dictionary, which I feel like I'm old now for saying my favorite dictionary. I heard somebody say one time, you know you're old when you have a favorite spatula, uh, which I have one of those two at home. Uh, but my favorite dictionary here, American Heritage Dictionary, says this. It flushes the idea out a little bit. A vocation is a regular occupation, so where you regularly work, especially one for which a person is particularly suited or qualified. So Merriam-Webster, we'll go back to them one more time. They actually have a second definition that they offer uh, that goes on to say that a vocation is a summons or a strong inclination to a particular state or course of action. So now we're starting to unpack the idea of, of a deeper understanding of what vocation can be. It's a summons or a strong inclination towards a certain action. So if you didn't think I'm a nerd because I like dictionaries, uh, you'll think I'm a nerd because I really enjoy sometimes actually digging into the root of a word. So you get the word vocation, and all right, if we really want to get a good understanding of what it means, where did this word come from? How did this word even get into the English language? Do we have any Latin scholars in the room? None? Man. So I took two years of Latin, four semesters of Latin at the University of Memphis, and it was so much worse than it even sounds when I say that. It, it, was, it was a, a miserable uh, four semesters, but I had to do it, I had to get through, uh, and it seemed like the easiest of the, of the options in terms of language. Uh, but vocation comes to us from a Latin word, uh, vocare. Uh, the great thing about Latin is it's what's considered a dead language, and nobody knows how it was pronounced, and so you never sound like an idiot saying a Latin word, because nobody can prove to you that it was wrong. So it comes to us, vocare, when you look at a a word like in Latin, a lot of times you can start to see other words that we might get from the English language. Do you guys see any other words that we might get from vocare? Vocabulary, words, yeah. Anything else? What's that? Vocal, yeah, exactly. And and, and those those are two great examples. When you look at the word vocare in Latin, this is what it means, to call. Vocare simply means to call. It is a calling, the act of being called. And so when we get the word vocation, the word literally means to be called, to call to something. So give you a little bit of a a very brief history lesson here. Back in the 16th century, uh, to have a vocation was really reserved for a very few select people. Most people at the time would not have been considered to have a vocation. Tonight, when you guys walk in, if, if I had said, hey, uh, what's your vocation? You guys would be able to talk about what you do, what you did today, what your job is. But in the 16th century, most people would say, oh, I, I don't have a vocation. That's not for me. In the 16th century, to have a vocation, which literally means calling, was reserved for clergy. It was reserved for people in the church who received a calling from God. And in fact, in the 16th century, 1500s, 1500s, If you were not clergy, in a lot of ways, you were considered a second-rate Christian because you had not received that call from God. And so there was this very clear distinction between the clergy, the called, and those who worked in the secular field and were not called. And that was a a great division in the church. You know, for us, I can guarantee that almost everybody in this room has multiple Bibles in their home. For the most part, most of us could go home tonight and get three, four, five Bibles, a lot of us. And if you have any kind of smartphone or smart device, you have every translation known of the Bible available within a few taps of your finger. Back in the 16th century, that was not the case. And in fact, let's take Germany, for example. Uh, The the Bible was really kept for two two things. One, for royalty. And two, it was reserved for the leaders of the church and the clergy. So much so that the pulpits that that they would have in their churches with the Bibles, the Bibles would literally be chained to the pulpits to make sure they couldn't leave the church. And not only that, even if you could get to it, the Bibles were in Latin. And why does that matter? Well, in Germany in 1500s, they didn't speak Latin. So you had to be specially trained. You had to be clergy. You had to go through training in order to even understand. And the reason they did that is they wanted the church to be able to control access to Scripture, uh, to the clergy, so the clergy were needed in order to tell the people what God said. All of that change, if you guys know uh, history at all, with a man named Martin Luther, and a guy named John Calvin was a big part of it as well, with what we now call the Protestant Reformation. And as we look at church today, church today is everything it is because of what happened in the 1500s through the Protestant Reformation, where we had a totally different understanding of what it meant to do, have church, what it meant to be a Christian, and a big aspect of it is what it meant to even have a vocation. You see, Martin Luther was, was reading in his scriptures and he would come across verses like this in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And when Martin Luther was reading that verse, he realized, hey, this isn't a verse written to church leaders. This isn't a a verse that's written with a pastor in mind. This is a verse that Peter is writing and God, through Peter, is speaking to church members, followers of Christ. This is written to the everyday Christian, not anybody that might be seen as elite or, or a higher level Christian or anything. This is everyday Christian. And he looked at it and said, hey, who's he talking to here? It paints a very clear picture of how God views every Christian. He says, you are a chosen race. Not just that, you are a royal priesthood. Every single believer, according to the Bible, is part of a royal priesthood. A holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And with that all said, why does Peter say that? And why does God make us those things? He says here in in verse 9 so that you can proclaim the praises of the one who saved you. You see, God doesn't have, and this is what Martin Luther really rediscovered and and what sparked a lot of the Protestant Reformation. God doesn't have a special class of Christian that he calls and a certain level of a certain class of Christian that he doesn't call. Now, don't get me wrong. The calling to the pastor is a very real calling, and it's a calling that is not meant for most people. But being called to be a pastor, you, know, you look at Steve Gaines, we would say that the God called Steve Gaines not just to be a pastor, but to be our pastor. And that is a very specific, real calling on his life. But just because you don't have that calling doesn't mean that there's any difference in God's eye between you and another Christian. The more Luther read the Bible, he realized that for the Christian, and this was a, a huge thing, and, and this may not sound huge for us, but it's huge there. But when you really think about your life, we'll talk about this a little bit. This is a big thing that most of us miss. When it comes to the Christian, there is no distinction between sacred and secular. See, a lot of us, we have our boxes that we like to keep our, our lives packed away and nice and neat. Where over here, we have this Christian box where this is where we go to church, and this is where we read our Bibles, and this is where we pray. And all of our Christian stuff, we keep nice and neat in this box over here. And over here, we have a, a box that is our work and where we go to to, to get paid and and where we go to make a living and where we're employed, and and we keep that box over here very separate from this box over here. And then we have a a lot of us have a third box of of hobbies. For some, it might be looking up words in the dictionary. For some, it might be uh, sports. It could be fishing. There's a lot of things, video games. There's a lot of things that we keep in this box, and this box over here of our vocation is a lot of times there in order to fund this other box here uh, and make it possible so that we can have these hobbies and live the life that we want. But that's not how God intended our lives. When, when we give our lives to Jesus Christ, when we become followers of Jesus, he takes all of our boxes and he dumps it into one box that's his. And he says, hey, every part of your life is mine. And ultimately, what the, great, uh, the Protestant Reformation recovered is the idea that it's not just the clergy that God calls. Everybody has a vocation. Uh, God has called each and every person in this room to something. Now, some of you might work in a school or you might work in a factory or you might work in an office building. You might work in a bank. You might work on a farm. But God calls each one of us to those things in the same way that God calls somebody to be a pastor. You know, in the Old Testament, uh, God's people relied on the priest in order to go before God and have that relationship with the Lord. And the Bible says that when Jesus died on the cross, that the, the veil that was in the temple that kept people away from the presence of God... It ripped from top to bottom, that God ripped it and opened the way for all people to come in. And what what, what Luther teaches us and, and what the scriptures teach us is that each one of us now carry that priesthood. And we are supposed to take that into our vocation where God has called us. You know, a lot of people think that, uh, oh, I'm going to go to church and the, the pastors and the staff of the church, they're going to take care of the, the ministry of the church and, and the, of the, the body of Christ. And we're just going to participate. But listen to this in uh, Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, where Paul really clarifies the role of the pastor and the role of the follower of Jesus Christ. And he himself, Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry in order to build up the body of Christ. And what that says is, is It's really the job of the pastor to equip the church, to equip the saints, and that's why you're here. We call Wednesday nights at Bellevue, we call it equip. Why is it? Is it so that you can come in here tonight, and not just so you can get a lesson about a 16th century event that happened called the Protestant Reformation, not that you can hear a couple of definitions of what it means in order to be, have a vocation, what that word means. You're here tonight, hopefully, to be able to walk away and to do the work of the ministry, and what that means is that 2000 Appling Road is not where the ministry of the church happens. We come here, and this is a huddle, and this is an opportunity for us to to grow and to sharpen one another and to get better. But ultimately, it's where you go to live, where you go to work, where the work of the ministry actually happens. And it's the job of the church to equip you to do the ministry in the place where God has called you in your vocation. God has given each one of us a special calling and a unique placement in a spot where only you can do what you can do. There's certain people that you can reach that Steve Gaines would never be able to reach. Each one of us has people in our lives that we have influence in their lives. We have been placed specifically and called specifically into neighborhoods, into our jobs, into uh, environments where we are, into schools. And we have an opportunity to reach people that other people don't have an opportunity. And that's part of your calling. The Bible teaches us that it is your calling to be that Royal priest, to take the, the, the love of the Lord and the testimony of what he has done in your life so that you can go and tell others about what he has done for you and what he can do for them. Listen to this. I know a lot of times people will look at uh certain positions and say, well, I'm not, I'm not gifted like that. That's not, I can't, I can't serve the Lord like that. I, I just don't have anything to offer. Or maybe this person is more valuable to the church than I am because, look, they can do this and 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 I can't do that. Paul addresses that in 1 Corinthians 12, 14 and following, where he says this, Indeed, the body is not one part but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it is not for that reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, <clears throat> It is not for that reason any less a part of the body. <clears throat> if the whole body were an eye, <clears throat> where would the hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God has arranged each one of the parts in the body just as he wanted. And if all of them were the same part, there would where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Or again, the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. And what Paul's saying there is that there is not a single part of your physical body that could function on its own. If you take your hand and it's just your hand, it's dead, it has nothing. You take just the head, just the eye, there's no part of your body that can function totally on its own. Every part of your body needs the rest of your body in order to function. And God designed it that way and designed the church in the same way that Ultimately, none of us can function well in the Christian life outside of each other and outside of the body. And the the group that you guys are in right now and around the table and coming, this is part of connecting to the body and being able to do what God has called us to do. But in the same way, you might feel like, I I can't contribute this area, I don't, whatever. We need, as a body, we need you. We need you. We need the eyes to be able to see, we need the ears to be able to hear. Without the nose, how would we smell? And God has given each one of us different gifts and positioned us in different spots specifically in order to fulfill the vocation and the calling that he has placed on our lives. If you notice here, the Bible says that God placed us exactly as he wanted. It says that God has arranged each one of the parts in the body just as he wanted. So my question to you tonight, and we'll jump back to the tables, is this. What is God calling you to do? What is your vocation? Now, you might say, well, I'm a banker, or uh, I'm a teacher. Well, yeah, that's part of it, but what is God calling you to do through that? And so, when you guys talk around the table, answer this question, what opportunities does your job, your vocation, provide you to do the work of the ministry? And we'll come back in just a few minutes. All right, we're going to hear from two or three of you guys at the table. So, you guys know the drill. Josiah is going to throw a mic at somebody, so... We're going to give people somebody five seconds to raise their hand, or somebody will get hit with a microphone. Oh, here we go. What did you guys hear around around your table?
1: We heard a lot of, like, getting comfortable in the world, and that can kind of push us away from, you know, speaking ministry into the vocation. And uh, I think that kind of hinders how we can be evangelistic in that sense. That's what I heard a lot of around our table on that. Yeah. That's that's
0: a great, great word. Anybody else over here?
1: At our table,
0: we had uh, one person that works with churches, and he gets to talk to them in their need. And sometimes they're in desperate need. He gets to share with them and help them out and minister them in that way. Another person, his vocation lets him go into people's homes. He says sometimes they're not interested in hearing what he's got to say about the Lord, but other times, he just forget what he's doing for a living. He just seems to sit with him and share with them about Jesus. So they're both putting their work into their vocation of equipping the saints.
1: All right, that's awesome. Hey, uh, so I just want to take just the, the balance of our time, and then we're going to give you some time at your tables to, to talk about it a little bit. And really, it kind of comes off of what you just talked about at your tables. I want to read this scripture. This is from Matthew chapter 5. And this is uh, towards the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus has just walked through the Beatitudes that a lot of you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, etc. cetera. Uh, and then he gets to these verses in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 13. Uh, probably something, if you've been in church, then maybe you've heard this, these verses before. It says, you're the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Also, you're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that it may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Now, he's talking to believers, but think about who he's talking to. He's not talking to a bunch of pastors. He's talking to people who come to know him and he's talking to them on the mountainside, and he is sending them out. he They're called, but they're called as believers, like Noah talked about, and now they're going to go out. And some of them are fishermen. Some of them are tent makers. What they are going to do, he is saying, as followers of Jesus, you are the salt of the earth. You are a city on a hill. Uh, and it's, that's my encouragement to you guys today is to know that whatever you do, and, and like Noah said, we have retired men in the room, I understand. You hopefully lived your life, your vocational life in the workplace, being the salt of the earth and a city on the hill, city on a hill to the people that you worked alongside or for or with or led. Um, So you still have the opportunity. And I hope as we talk about vocation that you will instill in the other young men in this room who are in their professions or are growing in their professions, that you will instill in them the importance of being salt and light in their vocation. And there's some of you in this room that you are right in the middle. You're leading an organization. You're gonna lead an organization or you put in the hardest eight to 10 to 15 hours a day at your job and you are called to be salt and light. It says in Colossians, uh, talking about kind of what we have in Christ. It says, if then you have been raised with Christ, which as believers you have been, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When uh, I graduated college, I went away to seminary for a bit. Uh, I got married, went away to seminary, and then I came back. uh, And I was living in Jackson an hour away from here, and I was serving as a youth pastor at a church. And one of my fraternity brothers that I was close with was getting married. And the wedding was in Mississippi. So we had a big wedding weekend where we got, um, uh, on that Friday, we all came down. We were going to play golf. Um, uh, and then we were staying at a place. All the wedding party was staying at the same place. We were going to uh, had a big wedding rehearsal that night. And the guys were hanging out that night. Wedding was the next day. Really excited. Good to be with some of my college buddies that I hadn't seen in a, maybe a year or two, some of them. Very excited about it. And we went to, uh, we played golf that day, and I just remember immediately that it wasn't as fun as I thought it was going to be. And the reason was, is because the very first, on the very first tee box, the very first drive, um, one of the guys pulls out of his golf bag a beer and to, to drink. And so for me, I, I don't drink, I didn't drink. I wasn't around that a lot. Like I said, these were fraternity brothers. I wasn't completely surprised, but I was surprised by the guy that pulled out a beer. And so then another guy gets up and he tees off and it's a bad tee shot. And he just lets a word fly, a word that in college for four years, I'd never heard him say. And I was like, what? This is a little weird. And I have to admit, for me, I was like, I'm a youth pastor at a church. Nobody knows who I am. I'm not worried about other people knowing who I'm hanging out with. I'm just like, "Ah, it just feels weird. So we, we go throughout it. I have to tell you, I like to play golf. I'm not good, but I like to play golf. It was a miserable round of golf. I remember vividly being on one tee box and hearing guys that I just loved, hearing guys that I loved hanging out with in college, just I could hear them just cussing up a storm, having fun, hooting and hollering, talking about the cart girl, all this kind of stuff. And I just remember feeling so, ah, I just, I hated it. And I was a 24, 25-year-old guy at this point. And I wasn't a sheltered guy. I wasn't like I'd never heard these words before. It wasn't like I hadn't been around a can of beer before. I didn't like it at all. And I just thought, I just remember thinking, I'm going to be around this all weekend. And so sure enough, we get finished. I go back. I'm married. I loved that my wife was there. Got to go back, see her, hang out, and kind of be like, it's weird. It's just these guys are not the same. That's, that's kind of what I told her. So fast forward. That we had the wedding rehearsal. It was sweet. It was great. And it was fun. And then the guys all get together and there was this big old, really nice finished out barn that the guys were hanging out with. And they wish we just going play cards. I thought that'd be fun. Uh, well, as soon as we get there, um, these guys start pulling out contraptions, like they're all gambling things, things I'd never, I'd never seen before. Once again, I'm not sheltered. I wasn't sheltered. I wasn't that guy. I just, I had not been around like real gambling. I think in high school we'd like, you know, done pennies before, something like that. Just And so they just, like they got on their visors. They're pulling out cigars. They're doing all the things. And they, they're they pulling out not dollar bills. They're pulling out 20s and 50s and 100s. And I I never sat down at the table. I I sat there and just kind of looked. And I, I, I can feel it right now. I, no exaggeration. I'm not being dramatic. I can feel it right now, just the feeling of like, I hate this. I don't want to be around this. And we were sitting at round tables just like this. There were there was one huge round table. There was about eight guys. And I just stood there. I know all of these guys. I've known them for at least four years. Some of them I've known since middle school. And I just say, I'm going to sit over here. And for me, I was taking a stand. At that moment, I knew I'm, I'm taking a stand. I just said, I'm going to sit over here. And they were like, what? I was like, I'm, that's all right. I'm not really interested. I'm just going to sit over here. And what was interesting about that is, is that every one of those guys just looked at me and said, okay. And so I went over and I sat at another table. This one's all nice, decked out. You know, they had it ready. They had all their cards. They had all the food, all the snacks. They had their money out. And I sat over here on this bare table with nothing on it. And I got a deck of cards that I found over on another table. And I played solitaire by myself. And I played for an hour and a half. And I remember I wasn't wasn't sad or anything like that. I was so mad. I was so mad at some of the guys that I knew, knew better and knew that what they were doing wasn't honoring in a lot of ways. And I did. I could tell you so much about it. I've already taken way too much time. I can tell you so much about it of even watching some of these guys run out of money and say, hey, I'm I'm supposed to give you this to the groom. I'm supposed to give you this. This is your wedding gift. Be okay if I just gamble this instead and then he'd lose it. Hey, don't tell my wife. I mean, this kind of stuff, nothing major. I won't say nothing major, but nothing is like immoral or, or, or illegal, I should say. That's what I'll say. So we get all finished with it, and that was it. They got finished with their card game, and they say, all right, you ready? I couldn't leave. I'd ridden with one of them over to the barn. And uh, and so I was like, yeah. So we left. And I, I'm not a loser. I wasn't a nerd with this group. I was, I was a leader of this group in a lot of ways. Um, and I tell you all of this to say, and some of you will disagree with the, with the application I want to give you, but this is what I will tell you. I will, i remember going back. I remember laying down in bed and, and waking up my wife and just telling her going, I'm miserable. Like I just had the worst day I could ever think. Cause these guys that I thought they were my, my buds and we were all on the same page and we are living different lives and I'm not ready for this and, and, and kind of had it in I was done, had the wedding. It was fine. I didn't talk to a lot of those guys for a really long time. Here's my application. And once again, some of you would go, way to go. You stood up. And I did. I did. I didn't, I didn't compromise something to me. I don't gamble. I don't drink. Um, I don't use that kind of language. I don't think that people have to do that in order to get by in life or to have a good time. But this is what I did. I don't, In that moment, I'm not sure that I was salt and light in their life. I'm not sure that I took full advantage of the opportunity I had to turn the direction of where things were going. Now, I'm not saying that I sinned in that. I'm not saying that I was wrong. But I know for me that there was a little bit of me being pretentious. I know that there was a little bit of me wanting to be like, I'm going to show you how bad you are by sitting over here in the corner and playing solitaire by myself, instead of being able to turn the corner and say, Hey, let me tell you why for me, I don't think we have to do this to have fun, which sounds like I could be a stick in the mud, but I didn't have enough confidence. I feared them a little bit, which made me not stand up for what I knew um, was a great opportunity to talk to them about things that were righteous, to talk about things that were better, to talk about things that would have drawn us closer together. Now, once again, if you all had my email address, some of you would probably email me and go, Hey, I, you know, I don't think you're wrong in this. Or, Hey, you're probably wrong to say you wanted to be with that group or whatever the case is. You are called to be salt and light in this world. And sometimes what that means is, is that we don't withdraw. Instead, we add to. We don't, we don't add to the bad stuff. But if we're going to be salt, one of the things that salt does is it adds flavor to something. And so, what are you going to do in your vocation in the situations that you find yourself in to add flavor to that situation? And it's not your flavor, it's the flavor of Christ. It is the flavor of Christ that you would come along and you would show them what who Jesus is, that you would show them what righteousness looks like. Um, There's um, a great quote that I like, your positive involvement in the workplace will produce many positive results in your life and in others. If you will live righteously and if you will insert yourself as salt um, into a a place that needs us to be salt, that needs us to give the flavor of Christ, if we will do that, then our positive involvement will make a difference in those around us. You have that opportunity. And I'm looking around at some of you. I know where some of you work. I know what you do. I know the Lord's called you there to be salt in the place that you're at. He's called all of us to. You're to be salt of the earth. But salt adds flavor. Uh, Once again, he says, the salt of the earth, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out. Salt adds flavor. I encourage you. You have the power of God that's in you. And you are not a change agent by yourself. Jesus is a life-changing agent. And salt is a change agent. You can be uh, used by God. And Jesus can be a changing agent in their life, and he can use you in your vocation. So I encourage you. Once again, I'm gonna keep going back to this whole story I've told you. There are times that it's good to take your stand and to stand firm in that. There are times also to insert yourself. It talks about in Colossians that we have the mind of Christ and we should keep our minds on things above. It doesn't tell us to keep our feet, right? There as well. Sometimes we take the mind of Christ into the place that he puts us. And I'm not talking about I'm not talking about dancing close to the fire or anything like that. I'm talking about, I know that there's a difference in being unequally yoked, and it, it talks about that in Scripture as well. But it does not tell us to remove ourselves, to only live in the Christian bubble, in that vocational Christian bubble. Also, not only does salt add flavor, it preserves. It preserves. As a follower of Jesus, for you guys in the marketplace, and your occupation, whatever you do, one of the things that you're called to do is to hold closely to the values That others reject around you. So it's not about you going in and and giving up or lowering your standards. Can you go into your occupation and can you live out the values that the Bible clearly shows us of how we're supposed to live? Can you do that in your vocation? That's what he's calling all of us uh, to do. Uh, That they reject him, you hold up those values. You can look in scripture. I was just uh, in a meeting earlier and, and Brother Steve was talking about something that he had just really been praying through. And, and I love, he said, you know, I'm just reminded once again, that everything that we need to know, the Bible tells us. And that's true. That's true for you and your a situation you find yourself in, a confrontation that you're having to deal with, a crisis that you're walking through, a hard relationship and with the business partner that you're walking through. The Bible tells us what we need to know. So you have Salt preserves what the word of God says. Your values can be on display. Your Christian values can be on display in whatever vocation that you're in. And the last thing that salt does is it cleanses. A lot of y'all have probably heard, um, I've never tried it, uh, but people talk about these salt water flushes and they say that they're really scary and you shouldn't do them to lose weight. But salt water, it's because salt can can be a cleansing agent. A lot of times for you. Once again, in my scenario, what what was best? Was it best for me to remove myself from that, or was there a moment for me that I should have cleansed? That I should have spoken up and given them this is what this is what the Bible says. Now, look, I'm not gonna, I wasn't gonna be the person that would pull my pocket Bible out and say, "Hey, let me tell you what it says right here, guys. What y'all are doing is wrong." But for me to tell them, to share with them from my heart what the Word of God has shown me would have been appropriate. For me to live that out uh, in front of them would have been an appropriate thing. So. Be salt in your occupation. Add flavor. Bring the favor of Christ to that. Preserve. Hold up your values, even that other people reject. Look to the word of God. And then also, there's going to be times where you need to speak up and cleanse. And then he also says this, that you're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. People don't light a lamp and put it under a basket, but put it on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You know, there is um, a command that we have here as followers of Jesus to be light. And what does light do? Light penetrates the darkness. It penetrates the darkness. And the good thing for you is you're not on your own in this. Jesus has gone before you and it is his power in you that will help you penetrate the darkness. You are called to penetrate the darkness. We live in a dark world. We know this. It's all around us. It's not a time for us to isolate. It's a time for us to penetrate, and you can do that in your vocation. With You have the Word of God as your standard and your foundation. You have other believers, and you're wondering, do I? You have them right here in this room. There's a bunch of you in this room that you can be encouraged by one another, and then you, you go on from here, and you penetrate the darkness. There's a guy that I read, and I'll be finished, and we'll move. We'll, we'll finish up. There's a guy. There's a book that I read when I was in college um, before this situation happened. Um, as I was, I was called to ministry. I knew that I was serving in ministry, and there was this guy named Bob Briner, uh, and Bob Briner wrote a book called Roaring Lambs. It was a, a pivotal book in my life. Um, like I said, in my college days, and his whole idea is. Uh, whatever you do, be a roaring lamb. So as, as children of God, we are, we are sheep, we are lambs, right? In a, in a lot of ways. But at the same time, we've been given great power and a great voice. And he wants to use us. And, and one of his quotes that I um, remember reading, he said, you can do Christianity as well as be a Christian. So it's one thing, yes, you can be a Christian and that is, that is what you want to do. You wanna be known as a follower of Christ. You can also um, live out, your Christian life. You can you can do Christianity, not just be a Christian. And you are being called to do Christianity, not a religion, your relationship with the Lord, but you are called being called to live out your Christianity in your workplace. Bob Briner was a businessman and he wrote this book and then he got cancer and is ready to die. He wrote one other book called The Final Roar right before he passed away. But in his book, he tells his story and the story of thousands of other people, um, of people who were in the workplace who were used by the Lord. And Bob Briner was one that decided he wanted to, he said all of the good entertainment um, is not good. It's it's All of the popular entertainment is not good. It's got filth in it. Um, All the wrong things sell, and shouldn't be the case. So he decided to invest in and produce and do everything that he could to get good entertainment. Not that it's labeled Christian, but that it has Christian values. And for him, um, if any of you, I'm not a huge fan, but I'm a huge sports fan. Um, This week, the Australian Open happened, um, and it was one of four tennis majors, and a guy broke, Rafael Nadal, he broke the record for the most majors ever in all of tennis, Bob Briner is the one who's responsible for pushing and pushing and pushing for the first national broadcast rights for tennis. That's what his life goal was. And he said, I want to do something that millions of people want to watch, um, and I want to do it in a moral, an ethical, and in a way that attracts other people to something that's I forgot the word that he used but basically is something that is family friendly. And so he fought and fought and fought. He didn't do it in the church world. He didn't he didn't want to become the best pastor. He said this is what I'm talented at. This is what I want to do. And now here it is 30 years later. Now national ten, uh, tennis is everywhere on national television. It's a big deal. I think Rafael Nadal made 8 million dollars to do it. When Bob Bronner did it, they were making $80,000 to do it. You are called to be a roaring lamb. You are called to be in your vocation, salt and light. And once again, maybe you're new to this. Maybe you're retired from this. You can help others in their journey of being salt and light in their vocation. I'm going to turn it to your screens. We only got just a a few minutes, but I want to give you time to talk about this around your tables. And when you're done with this, you can be dismissed. How can you be salt and light in your vocation? How can you add flavor to or preserve and cleanse your vocation? So talk about that around your tables, maybe pray together, and then uh, you'll be dismissed. Thanks.